Psalm 136 actually contains a lot of biblical history. You're going to see it's a lot of remembering what God has done, but it's actually a psalm, more of a psalm of thanksgiving than it is anything else. And based on the way that it's written, a lot of scholars think that it was meant to be read responsively. So there's a worship leader who reads the first line, and then everybody else repeats that second line with him. And so I want to do something different this morning, and I want to read it that way together. Let's read Psalm 136 together. And so I'll read the first line, and then we'll read the second line all together. I'm reading from the ESV. So the, the stanza that we repeat may sound a bit different than yours. I think it'll be all right. Just read what you've got. But the ESV says, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who made the great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, king of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. And gave their land as a heritage, for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his steadfast love endures forever. He who gives food to all flesh, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, if we don't remember anything else from this morning, may it be what we've just repeated 26 times. Your steadfast love endures forever. It's a kind of love that not only can we not fully comprehend here on earth, 
But Lord, it's going to take eternity and, and beyond, if there even is such a thing, of diving down into the depths of it every day, every moment, forever. Lord, that seems so far away right now. It could just be in the blink, in the twinkling of an eye that we enter into that. But Lord, we experience your love in great measure, even here now on this earth in these frail human bodies in ways that we might not even recognize. So Lord, help us today. Remember the things that you've done and may it spur on the the right posture and the right position in us and in our hearts today as your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we've just repeated 26 times, it, it kind of started to seem a little monotonous a little bit, but then if, if you kind of were quiet and you could just hear the whole congregation s- saying that line over and over, it, it has a way of, of entering down deeper and convicting our hearts and reminding us of the truth that his love does endure forever. And that phrase is one of the most precious phrases in all of scripture. It's one of the most used ones too. It's a really important phrase in Jewish history. It was used in some of the most important times in Israelite history. Think about, here's just a couple of examples. First Chronicles 16, 34, David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, and the people say this phrase. Second Chronicles chapter 5, verse 13, when the temple was completed and the glory of the Lord filled it, this phrase was heard. And then one we talked about just a couple of weeks ago in Second Chronicles chapter 20, when King Jehoshaphat was going to take his army out, he didn't take his army first, he sent out the singers, and they sang this line. This was part of what they sang. And the enemies turned on each other and were completely destroyed, and the Israelite army didn't even have to lift a finger. This phrase, his steadfast love endures forever, is really important, not only in biblical history, but it should be really important in our lives today. Now, if you look at it, really only the first three verses and then the last verse actually include the phrase, give thanks. But you know what? It's implied in every verse. So you could really read, give thanks in front of every verse, at least in our English translation. It would work that way. It's just implied. And the things that this psalm is calling our minds back to is designed to inspire reflection and it's designed to inspire praise. Those are two things. When we read this verse that we should be moving towards, but I want to point something out here, which I think is really interesting. If you look before he gets, the author gets into all of the wonderful things that God has done for his people, look at the first couple of verses. What do the, what's the content of these? What's he pointing to? He's not pointing to the wondrous works that God has done. He's pointing to who God is. And in reality, that's where our all theology, all good theology anyway, that's where it starts. Who God is. Who is this one that we worship? Who is this one that we take direction from? We're told in verses 1 through 3 that we're supposed to give thanks. Why? Before even for what God has done, we're giving thanks because of who God is. For he is good, the end of verse 1 says. For he is good. The word good appears in the Old Testament alone, guess how many hundred times? 700. 
700 times in the Old Testament, the word good is, is found. Guys, everything that God does is good. Why? Because he is good. He's a fountain of goodness. And so everything that comes out of that fountain, then therefore is also good. The blessings that we receive in our lives today are good. Why? Because he is good and he gives good blessings. He's always good. That's just who he is as a person, as God. And so what he, what comes out of him is good. And it's, I know it's hard for us to imagine God as good as he really is though, because we can't compare anybody else to God in that way. You, cause you can think of the, the goodest is not a word, the best person, the most good person that you've ever known. And you know what? They still have their bad days. You think of the most innocent little kid, big, beautiful eyes, innocent, and yet they can be terrors. It happens. Because sin comes out of them. There's no sin in God at all. And so everything that comes out of him is good. People have good qualities, but not any of them are only always good. But that's how God is. He's always that way. He's never anything but good. Think about that friend. Maybe this describes you at certain times. But maybe you've got a friend. You kind of have to get a gauge when you're talking to him about what kind of mood they're in as you go along in the conversation to know how that conversation is going to go. Or maybe you know another person, maybe they're not necessarily a friend, but you know people like that, and it's like, what kind of mood are they going to be in? We have to see if they're in a good mood. You know what? We don't have to catch God at a good time. We don't have to hope that when we kneel and pray that we're catching him in a good mood. God is good all the time. He's always good. He's always working things in our lives, even the things that we might consider hard times, the worst of times, he's working those things for our good. And this psalm reminds us, calls us back to, th- to give thanks for that. Everything that we have, everything that we give thanks for comes out of that truth. God is good. His love endures forever. So first and foremost, Psalm 136 tells us that we should give thanks to God for who God is because God is good. Verses two and three tell us to give thanks to the God of gods, the Lord of lords. So there's similarity here. These verses echo Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who's not partial and he takes no bribe. We're learning who God is, his character, what he's like. And the Bible tells us that he's above all. He's good and he is the God. He is the Lord. And there's a purpose, I think, in the similarities of these couple verses, verses 2 and 3. Not only what Jason already pointed out this morning is that repetition means emphasis, but it, it also points out that there are some things and there are people in this world, in your lives, that have power and authority. They would be the little G God, maybe, or the little L Lord. We have bosses. We have people in authority that have some kind of power. Back in Old Testament times, and maybe even still today in some religions, gods were believed to possess power, right? We can just think back to Egypt 
and their gods. They were believed to possess some kind of power. They had some kind of authority. Uh, lords had authority over provinces. That's what they called, you know, mayors or that sort of thing sometimes back in the day. They had some kind of authority. But these verses, verses 2 and 3, teach us they might have a little bit of authority, but they have none compared to God. God is an authority over the one that we think has the most. The Lord that we look to has the one is, is the Lord that's over every other Lord. His power, his authority are above everybody else's. He's divinely good, and he's totally sovereign above every other ruler and every other authority. So God is, this is what the psalmist is saying. God is not only good, but God is not, is, is all powerful. He's supreme in authority. These are the character traits that we're being taught about God. This should be shaping our theology of who God is. All the authorities, all the little gods, all the little L lords, they have some kind of authority here on earth, but God reigns supreme. God has more power and more authority, and it's proved by the following verses. So now we're going to take some chunks of verses and look at them together because verses 4 through 25, almost the whole rest of the psalm, they, they really are just saying, here's why we know that the Lord is good. Here's how we know that God is totally powerful and all and, and, and sovereign overall. Verses 4 through 25 spell it out. And he starts recounting Israelite history of everything that God has done. So he moves in an interesting kind of a, a transition. He moves from who God is to what God has done. And they make up these verses, they make up the heart of the psalm. And they focus on really some big themes, namely creation and then redemption. And you see that. There's a, a, a quote I came up, upon this week, and it said this, talking about Psalm 136. As the singers of this psalm enunciated the words of the psalm, they brought the past powerfully into the present. God who created is creating. God who delivered is delivering. God who sustained is sustaining. So what the Lord has done, he continues to do because of his goodness and love. God has not changed. If he was good and loving to his people in Old Testament times, he's good and loving even today to his people. And so verses four through nine remind us that God is the creator. He is the one who has set his affection on his people, the people of Israel. He is the one who continues to fulfill his promises to them, who repeatedly rescues them from extinction. This God is the same God who skillfully created everything that you see, everything that is. It's the same God. The same God who cares for his people intimately and deeply is the same God who created everything. That's powerful. All of creation proves this. All of creation gives witness to this power, to this God, to his wisdom. Gives evidence to his faithful covenant love that endures forever. Your mind might go back to Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
All creation proves this. From then, original creation, all the way to the new creation we learn about in Revelation, God's steadfast love not only created and sustained everything, but it continues to. He continues to sustain everything that he's created. Look at verse 10. 10 through 16. These verses go into, move from creation into Israel history. And they, they really recount specifically the, the greatest salvation act in all of Israel's history. Pre-New Test, pre-Jesus. God had done something incredible. He, he'd done a lot of incredible things over the years in Israelite history, but nothing compared to the event that's being talked about here in Egypt. Delivery from Egypt. His power was on full display as he took down in those plagues the, the, the old gods of Egypt, just tearing them down. Not only did he deliver his people from slavery in a miraculous fashion, but he led them through the Red Sea and then he destroyed their enemies in the same Red Sea. Now think about the, think about the redemptive parallels in just that for a moment with me. This really struck me as I was thinking about this this week. What God used to deliver his people from their enemies, he also used to destroy the enemies. Think about that, the Red Sea. He delivered his people through it, but then when Pharaoh and his army went through, it folded back in on top of them, destroying them. And here's the thing. God did the same thing at Golgotha, on the cross. He used the cross to deliver his people, but he also used the same cross to crush his enemies, the enemies of sin and death and the evil one. Notice verse 16. This verse calls its readers to give thanks to God because he has led them through the wilderness. Now, Let me point out something here that might not be quite obvious right away as you read that. That's that's a a statement of fact in biblical history. God led them through the wilderness. But you know what? It doesn't say, and God didn't do, God didn't lead his people around the wilderness. He didn't lead his people away from the desert. He led them through it. I think that's important because God is good, right? That's what this psalm is really establishing. So God is good and he shows love to, love to his people because of who he is. God made the heavens and the earth because he loves his, his people. He brought Israel out of Egypt because he loves his people. He split the Red Sea and rescued them. Why? Because he loves his people. His covenant love endures forever. But then we get to verse 16. And maybe we think God got it wrong. We tend to think, well, gosh, wouldn't a better display of your love, Lord, be that you brought the people of Israel out of the desert, away from the desert, rescued them from it, not that you led them through it? And maybe we start to question what's going on here. That's not what verse 16 says. It says, give thanks for leading them through the wilderness because his steadfast love endures forever. It might be hard to wrap our heads around this, guys. 
But this verse subtly teaches us that God led his people through the desert because he loves them. The psalmist of 119 recognizes this same aspect of the love of God that I'm getting at. Verses 67 and 68, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. A couple verses later in 71 and 72, he says, It's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Friends, God's providence in our lives oftentimes leads us through pain and trials, not around them, not away from them, leads us through them. This doesn't mean that God has forgotten us. This doesn't mean that God doesn't care anymore or that he's grown weak and that he can't save. It's to display his redeeming grace and to conform us more and more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. James chapter 1, 2, and 4. Consider it all joy then, brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see what's happening? In the trials of your life, in the wilderness, in the desert, however you want to describe it, God brings you through it for endurance's sake. That endurance might make you more into the image of Jesus Christ. Perfection. God redeems. He sustains and he leads his people because his steadfast love endures forever. But God doesn't just stop at redeeming and leading his people. The next few verses describe how God richly blesses them. Look at verses 17 through 22, that section. These verses tell the stories of God's deliverance from powerful kings who came out to oppose Israel on their way to the promised land. It mentions Sihon and Og. You can find these battles recorded in Numbers 21. They talk about this. And even though these kingdoms were powerhouses in the day, Israel was relatively a small group in comparison. They were victorious over these guys. Why? not because of their military strategy or might. They were victorious simply because the one true creator, all-powerful God was leading them. And often is the case, as we already mentioned one battle this morning, without them even having to fight at all. He just did it. So God defeated their enemies, and he gave Israel their land as an inheritance, as a heritage. This came with responsibilities that Israel kind of forgot, didn't do very well, took for granted sometimes. But the promised land was their land. That was the land that God was giving them. Look at verses 23 and 24. There's a subtle shift here, a subtle shift of pronouns that I want to make note of. The author goes from describing the different displays of God's love for his people as if he was just kind of on the outside looking in, right? This is what God did for his people. And almost like he didn't, he wasn't really involved in that, but now it changes. In these verses, the focus turns more personal. And so I think 
it can turn personal for us as well. Because his steadfast love endures, it says, verse 23, he remembered us in our low estate and rescued us from our foes. Man, at Israel's lowest point, when they were in most need of rescue, God came through. God remembered and loved them. You know what? Being humbled has a funny way of helping us see God's providence more clearly. Seeing God's handiwork in things. When you stop relying on your own strength, your own ability, your own goodness, whatever it might be that you're relying on outside of the Lord, when he comes through and humbles us, we see his handiwork even clearer. And you know what? Sometimes it doesn't even feel like love, does it? When God moves, when God works, sometimes it doesn't feel like love. Because sometimes discipline feels that way. But the motivation behind every discipline is love. And God God humbles his people because of his love for them, his enduring, steadfast love to them. So if I could sum this whole chapter up as succinctly and shortly as possible, I'd do it in three words. He is faithful. Or God is faithful. Second Timothy 2.13 is such an encouraging verse. It says that if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. God doesn't change just because we don't behave properly, because we don't obey perfectly. God does not change. He remains faithful. Glory to his name. Now, verse 25 goes back to the opening theme of the whole psalm. It returns to a reflection on God's goodness as the creator. It says that his love to all of creation is evident in that he continually cares for his creatures, for his creation. It says that he gives food to all flesh. Now think about the creatorship and care of Christ that we find in Colossians chapter 1. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Christ not only was there at creation, it was all done through him. John 1 calls him the Word. He was there. It was made through him, for him. And all things hold together through him still. Psalm 104 gives interesting detail to the things that God has made. So if you just flip to Psalm 104, just back there, and look at some of the things. It's a sort of a parallel psalm. It talks about a bunch of the stuff that God has made creation. It talks about wild donkeys birds, uh, the grass, different trees. It, it even talks about rock badgers and lions, huge sea creatures, and mankind. And in these things, the, the psalmist there says, these all look to you, talking about God. These all look to you to give them food in their due season, in due season. The creator of all divinely meets the needs of all because of his faithful love. 
Because he loves his creation. He provides for them. Flip back to Psalm 136. Look at the last verse with me. Verse 26. That verse says, Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. That phrase, God of heaven, is kind of interesting. If you look at it more, this psalm, or that phrase, isn't used at all in any other psalm. It's only used a couple of times in the Old Testament outside of this. God of heaven. Not only has he created all flesh, not only does he provide for it and sustain it, he's creator of even the heavenly places, the God of heaven, even the heavenly places that we don't see and can't fully understand yet. God is big. God is all-powerful. Now, we can look through, and this is kind of an interesting thing to do, you can look through telescopes, and you can see way far out into the solar system. Right? You can see galaxies outside of our own. You can see stars millions of light years away. You can see all kinds of stuff. But you know what? Astronomers still disagree on how it all got there. Astronomers still don't understand why some stars die and then some are new. How planets fully function and rotate and orbit. They don't understand all of these things. They're no closer to understanding them now in a lot of ways than they were a thousand years before Christ around the time this psalm was written. If God is the God of heaven, which the Bible clearly teaches that he is, then we're supposed to give him thanks. The God of heaven. This emphasizes again God's sovereignty as the creator and the ruler of all things. In the early 1900s, there was a theologian named Abraham Kapoor, and he put it this way. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Nothing is outside of his lordship, but he is faithful. He's he's a faithful and kind Lord. A more modern author has said, as you look around all that he has made, and follow through all that he has done. At every point, this psalm is saying, covenant love did that. God's love does this. If it's true that God redeems, sustains, leads, and blesses his people, where do we come in? What should our response be? We should ask that question together this morning. If this is true of who God is and what he's done, how do we respond? What should we do? First, it's pretty obvious, as I said at the beginning, you could assume it says two words before every line. Remember what they were? Give thanks. Right? So that, number one, that should be our, our thought. Give thanks for the good things. Give thanks for the hard things, the wilderness that we may be being led through. Give thanks. Another proper response that we see here is to remember our position. None of what we've talked about was given because the receiver deserved it. In fact, when the earth was created, God was the receiver. In fact, it's opposite. The people that got all this stuff from God, redemption, salvation, leading his spirit, 
they didn't deserve it at all. They were undeserving of it. The psalm doesn't mention it. There's plenty of others that do. But man, Israel was hard-headed. God's people were hard-hearted at times and still are. Despite all of that, this psalm makes clear that you repeated 26 times at the beginning, his steadfast love endures forever. So our position is not one of arrogance. It's not one of deservedness like, well, I was really good today, Lord. You should bless me. It's not pride. But I don't think it should be one of like, heavy-handed forced submission either. Our posture should just be one of humility and gratefulness. Paul reminded us of this very thing in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Brother and sister in Christ, Give thanks in all circumstances. I realize in some seasons that's so much harder than in other seasons. That's where the church, his people come in to hold you up. That's where his spirit dwells, who dwells inside of you can comfort you. In all things, in all circumstances, God's faithful covenant love cannot be fully captured by human words, even though the book of Psalms gets about as close as we can. It can't be captured by words. Instead, it's best captured in a person. The word made flesh. The firstborn of all creation, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And a thousand other titles that we can never wear out by repeating them too much. You're never going to wear them out by repeating them too much. We didn't sing it this morning, but I love the fifth stanza of that hymn, O Worship the King. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It says this, In thee do we trust, nor find thee to fail. Thy mercies, how tender, how firm to the end. Our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. Christ is the very essence of God's love. He was the display of God's love. And so love flows fully and freely from him. Such a God deserves gratefulness. Such a Savior deserves worship both now and for eternity. Do you see him as that line of the song says? As your maker, defender, redeemer, and friend? Do you see him that way? His steadfast faithful, enduring, never-ending, forever love for you was displayed on the cross. Call out to him in repentance and faith and be joined together with this all-powerful creator God who loves you deeply today. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the God of heaven. We give thanks to you today for who you are. Even if we're in the middle of the wilderness, 
we give thanks to you for who you are because our circumstance changes so often, but you never do. And so you are our, our stronghold that we run to when times are hard. You lead us through these things, Lord, to make us more like Jesus. And so, Lord, I don't, I don't know where everybody's at this morning who's listening as far as the wilderness or the good times, Lord, but inevitably we need our theology to be shaped by your word that tells us that you're good in all things. Even if they don't seem good to us, they're still good because you are good. You can do nothing but show goodness and love. And Lord, we know that you're sovereign over all. So nothing here happens to us outside of your control and hand. And you do these things, you work things together for your glory and for our good. Even when we don't see them as our good, Lord, I pray that we would trust that they're for your glory. Do a movement in us today, Lord. And if there's some who don't know you here, who need to understand this kind of enduring forever love and they haven't before, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. I pray that they might come down and talk with me or another pastor elder here, or Lord, they just cry out to you directly and say, God, I need that love. I, I, I can't get it anywhere else. Every other love is conditional, but yours. And so, Lord, may you pour it out on your people today. In Christ's name, we thank you. And in Christ's name, we pray. Amen.